Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Hi. Uh, I'm going to tell you what this show is about. We're having a little bit of a problem. We have five guests on this show, but there's one who is uh, first among equals, and we're having a little trouble uh, getting her set up on a line. Uh, so let me tell you what the show is about. First of all, I'm going to tell you that there's a graying uh, prison population. Um, and when I say a graying American prison population, um, I'm saying that from 1993 to 2013, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think I'm getting it right. From 1993 to 2013, um, the prison population of the United States over 55 multiplied by 400%. So uh, four times as many older prisoners uh, incarcerated in 2013 as there were 20 years before that. So, and why is that? Well, I mean, one of the, among the reasons for that were a wave of tougher sentencing laws and determinate sentencing laws in the 80s uh, that carried over into the 90s. Um, so what you had was, first of all, the ultimate revoc- revocation uh, of the federal parole system, which, uh, which was theoretically revoked in 1984, except it turned out to be a lot harder to revoke than they thought it was. So they had to keep passing these other laws because they had, but the problem was they had a lot of uh, prisoners whose paroles, uh, whose sentencing and paroles went back before 1984. And those people could not on an ex post facto basis be covered by that law. Anyway, you had this, this huge population of prisoners uh, who were no longer uh, eligible for parole. Those were in particular the ones added post-1984. So you got a whole bunch of prisoners. Uh, Now, as they uh, age, uh, first of all, prison is a bad place to age. It's bad for your health to try to age in prison. Uh, So people get uh, sick in prison more easily, more more quickly, more frequently, and more seriously than they do in the outside world. It's a very unhealthy environment uh, for a bunch of different reasons, probably stress being the top of them. So people get sick in prison. They get sicker than they typically do out there in the regular population. Uh, and, and so they're aging through that system in states of poor health. You with me so far? <laughs> so, um, so then what happens? Well, then suddenly now you have this huge cohort uh, of prisoners incarcerated during the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, they can't get out. Uh, they had determinate sentencing or they're not eligible for parole, so they can't get out. And um, their health is failing. Um, it's incredibly expensive to take care of uh, prisoners who are sick, particularly uh, uh, prisoners who are chronically ill. It's also very difficult to deliver to them adequate care. And keep in mind, a lot of these people who are in prison are, are in prison for nonviolent drug offenses and fraud and stuff like that. So um, very difficult to deliver them adequate care. Um, parentheses, uh, I believe you le- lose your Medicaid eligibility when you go into prison. So you also, it's also a problem at the state level because uh, the states lose the Medicaid. Alle- they, have, they wind up treating somebody who would be Medicaid eligible otherwise. And we're going to come to that because there are, uh, are reasons attached to that, why it makes sense to maybe treat some of these people uh, outside the prison environment. So you've got all those problems. Um, and so what can you do? 
Well, there's a com- concept called compassionate release. Compassionate release is a concept that exists at the federal level, uh, and um, it's a, a, a concept that was implemented in order partly to deal with this problem and also partly to replace or, or make up for the elimination of federal parole. So compassionate release is the idea is that when somebody's really sick, when somebody's very old, um, they get out. They get out if they can be released into a very controlled environment, a treatment environment or, the, or a family home typically is what it is at both the federal and state level. Um, I, I might add that the rate of recidivism among prisoners uh, of that age is incredibly low. If you're over 65, the rate of re- recidivism drops to around zero. Uh, I think if you're over 50, the rate of recidivism—I can't say recidivism—recidivism <laughs> drops to around two percent. So these people do not necessarily represent a threat to their communities, and they have to be evaluated on that basis. Okay, I'm going to just quickly see whether uh, Christy Thompson is ready for us or not, and whether I can talk to her uh, on uh, the Seattle connection. Christy Thompson, can you hear me? No, that's not happening. All right. So um, then, why are we doing this show? We're doing this, but while I'm talking, producers are running around frantically <laughs> trying to find this guest. It's why it's good to prepare in advance for yourself, because sometimes you might have to talk for a long time. Uh, so um, why are we doing this show? So this um, notion of compassionate release um, is sort of the answer to this question. You know, What do you do about this huge cohort? Uh, and the problem is that although a lot of people apply, thousands of people at the federal level reply, apply for compassionate release, an incredibly small percentage of people get it. Um, and a lot of times when they apply, they might have the support of wardens. They might have the support of community leaders back where they live. They might have the support of all kinds of people. Uh, the decision in, on the, in the federal system is made by the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, and the Bureau of Prisons alone, and they just, for whatever reason, and we'll explore that today, for whatever reason, they are not in the habit of granting compassionate release. And when when I'm talking about compassionate release, I'm talking about people who, in many, many cases, have serious terminal illnesses. They're going to die. They've been given some kind of clock. You know, you get six months to a year to live, or you've got two weeks to a year to live. Uh, They are not going to go on some kind of rampage. They've got stage stage four liver cancer or really advanced diabetes or whatever their problem is. They, you know, usually to get compassionate release, you have to be terminal or damn near it. I might add that in Connecticut, if you get better, you have to go back to prison, which strikes me as kind of strange. If you go go out to a nursing facility or go to your home and then you recover substantially, they can send you back to prison. But anyway... It, it seems like it's a great idea. It's a great idea on a bunch of different levels. As the name suggests, it's compassionate. It allows people to die with their families. It allows people to die not in shackles. It allows, allows people to die in, in systems and in places that are better set up to deliver palliative care uh, than a prison is. You know, prisons do lots of different things, but palliative care is probably pretty low. Uh, uh, in, in their hierarchy. So for some reason or other, a lot of people who apply, most of the people who apply for this don't get it. Um, uh, a heartbreakingly high number, it's in the hundreds uh, of people who've applied for this, um, have died in prison before getting it, um, without getting it. Um, and, you know, in many cases, these are people whose families have, you know, a really good plan. If they're lucky enough to have support of family members on the outside, which a lot of people don't have, particularly by the time they get old enough to be eligible for this, but if they're lucky enough to have 
um, a supportive family somewhere on the outside, um, those families can make terrific plans for them. Uh, you'll hear in one case uh, about a, a family that uh, was prepared to receive a, a man who had very, very few w- weeks left to live and, and seemed um, you know, not able to do very much, so sick and dying that he was not high-functioning. Uh, and uh, and they had a whole plan for him. And heartbreakingly, it mostly involves just going home and being taken care of, but I think they were going to try to take him to his favorite racetrack one last time so he could see that anyway. Um, and he, he died. He died before getting any of that. So that's one of the things that we're going to be exploring today. We're going to be talking about compassionate release, why it's not used more. We're going to be talking about it uh, primarily first at the federal level with Christy Thompson, who writes about criminal justice for the Marshall Project. Uh, We'll tell you more about her most recent work. You're going to meet two people uh, who are family members, uh, uh, whose, whose relatives, in fact, did die in prison while seeking this very basic idea of compassionate release. And then we're going to look at, look at it here in the state of Connecticut. So um, there's a federal version of it, and then the states are, are able to develop their own versions of it. Connecticut has a version of it. Uh, we're going to talk to two people who are experts on that. Mike Lawler, who's Undersecretary for Criminal Justice Policy and Planning uh, in the Connecticut Office of Policy and Management within the Malloy administration. And then we'll uh, talk to Richard Sparacco, who is executive director of the Connecticut Board of Pardons and Paroles. All right. So I've just broken one of my records for vamping, uh, and I think we are ready to go. Uh, Joining us now is the aforementioned Christy Thompson, who writes about criminal justice for the Marshall Project. Her recent work, uh, Old, Sick, and Dying in Shackles, was recently published in The New York Times as Frail, Old, and Dying, But Their Only Way Out of Prison is a Coffin. Uh, So, uh, Christy Thompson, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Sorry about the technical difficulties. That's no problem. Thanks so, for having me. Unfortunately, I've now summarized a great deal of the premise of your article, but uh, there's still <laughs> much, much uh, more to say. So I, I did describe the, the compassionate release law uh, and, uh, and how it allows the oldest and sickest inmates to leave prison uh, early as long as they meet certain criteria. Give us a sense of how rarely... Uh, in your research, this um, phenomenon of compassionate compassionate release is actually invoked uh, and granted to prisoners. Yeah, so we were able to get data from the Federal Bureau of Prisons on every compassionate release request that had been filed since 2013, and that was about 5,000 requests. And out of that, only 6% of those requests had been approved so far, um, which is, you know, around 300 cases. And what was really interesting was that in that same time frame, 266 people who had requested compassionate release still died in federal custody. So it's a very small number of people that apply that are actually getting out through this statute. Now, as, as I understand it largely through your reporting, the, the bottleneck here, the choke point in this is the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Often these people, as I said before, have a tremendous amount of support from their prison, even from their prison warden. Uh, and they may have also a tremendous amount of support home in their own communities, community leaders, families, clergy people come forward. Yes, yes, let them out. We'll make sure this goes well. Um, the Bureau of Prisons seems to have a, a pretty much Roman empirical uh, power. Over this, uh, tell us more about that. 
They are definitely, you know, the final gatekeepers in terms of who is able to get out of custody because someone cannot go to a judge and say, okay, let's reduce this guy's sentence until the Bureau of Prisons approves them, signs off on them, endorses them to the court. So there were definitely some cases that stood out. You know, one of the cases we write about is a guy named Wayne Prey. He's in federal prison, has been there for decades for running a you know, pretty significantly sized cocaine operation in New Jersey. Um, but what was interesting is he had the support of his warden, his chaplain, um, you know, the former and current mayor of Newark, some sole members of Newark law enforcement. Um, and yet when it got to the central office of the BOP, they said, oh, you know, he has we can't let him out because of the severity of his initial crime and because of his disciplinary record. Well, the last offense he had on his disciplinary record was 20 years earlier for improperly storing property, um, kind of a prison euphemism. So it does show that there do seem to be certain cases in which, despite all of this other support, the BOP still seems pretty determined not to let people out. And I mean, well, one would think that there might be some incentives for the BOP to let people out, as I was saying in the introduction. This is an incredibly expensive thing to do, to treat people who are seriously ill in prison. First of all, prisons aren't any good at it. They're not as good at it as nursing homes or hospitals or, or, or families um, and, and, or hospices. Uh, and it costs a hell of a lot of money. I mean, why wouldn't, just in order to get a little relief from budget pressure why, and prison overcrowding, why wouldn't the Bureau of Prisons want to do this? Right. Well, and and that's kind of why compassionate release is being talked about so much more right now is because there's been so much research that shows that federal prisons, I think spending on healthcare in federal prison grew by something like 30 percent from 2009 to now. I mean, it's just a, a huge expense. And we know that most of that money is coming from caring with people with chronic illness and the elderly, because also because of the length of sentencing in the United States, the U.S. prison population is graying significantly, getting much older. And with that comes a lot more very pricey uh, health issues. So that is why it's being talked about a lot more. It's why the inspector general did a report on it. Um, But, you know, from Bureau of Prisons perspective, they're saying their interpretation of this statute says that it's supposed to be used very rarely, that it's not supposed to be used to do a broad reduction in the prison population or as a means to save money, and that it's their job and not the court's to determine whether someone would be likely to commit another crime when they were after they're released. Well, there's 183,000 uh, federal prisoners, uh, something like that, I think. Uh, about 5,000 total applications uh, o- over the years that you studied, uh, I think. I'm doing this off the top of my head. But um, that, to me, even if they granted all 5,000 of them, that still would be a pretty small sampling of the prison population. Right. I mean, and that's the thing is when you look not just at the of the roughly 5,000 applications that got applied, but rather as a percent of the overall prison population, because it's not just about whether or not someone gets approved after they apply. It's also about how much it takes to even file that application, whether people are aware that this program exists, whether if they're, you know, sick and on their deathbed, they're even physically able to file one. There's been a lot of issues around whether family members can file on behalf of an inmate or they have to do it themselves. So even just looking at the number of applications that they received maybe doesn't necessarily look at the total possible population that might be eligible or should be considered for this program. 
Um, so one of the families that you wrote about actually was a family, two members of which I, I know, uh, although one of the, uh, so Erwin Schiff, who I actually knew during his lifetime, his pre-incarceration oh, wow. lifetime, um, uh, and of course Peter Schiff, uh, who's not so much in the article as somebody else I know too, but um, that's one of his sons. Andrew Schiff is the person that you uh, write about. But describe their situation, because this is... So I, we should say Erwin Schiff was a kind of famous uh, tax protester. And he wasn't, a, he wasn't a, like a guy who tried to cheat on his taxes so much as a guy who basically refused to pay his taxes. Uh, right. Anyway, he didn't believe what, in taxes. He didn't believe in taxes. Believe me, I, have, I had enough conversations with Erwin about that to last <laughs> me a lifetime. But, um, but uh, so explain what happened. Yeah, well, with, you know, the way that I came to Erwin Schiff's case was um, in the data that we got, people who had died in custody, their names were not redacted. Everybody else's names were, but we could see the names of people, see how old they had been, how long they had been trying to get released. So he, his name really popped out because he'd been 87 at the time that he died. Um, he had been trying to get compassionate release for over two years when he passed away, and he had actually never received a final answer on his application. So that's what made me go looking to find out what had happened. And I found his son, Andrew. Um, like you said, Erwin had been convicted yeah, of, of tax fraud, um, and he didn't actually have that much longer to serve in his sentence. Um, but they just couldn't get couldn't get things moving fast enough in order to get him approved before he died or even to find out if he would be approved before he died. And what struck me about their story was hearing what it was like for him to go visit knowing that his dad probably wasn't going to get home before you know, before he passed away and going to visit him in a federal medical center. You know, he walks in there and his dad is shackled to a hospital bed, he told me. And there's, you know, when he's saying his final goodbyes to his father, it's in the presence of a caseworker and an armed guard. Um, and he told me this story of wanting to play some, like, old Yiddish folk music. And the guard says, no, no, no cell phones in here. And finally, the caseworker intervened and said, okay, he can... I mean, you know, the man's on a respirator and unconscious, and this is still the level of security that we have for them. So his story really struck me as, as what happens when you can't get out through compassionate release and what it means to have someone who spends their final days in prison who wasn't sentenced to life in prison. Um, we should say, I said it before you joined it, but, but a lot of this is the result of two phenomena, right? One of them was a wave of harsher and determinate sentencing policies, not just three strikes and you're out, but determinate sentencing policies in the 1980s, really slopping into the 1990s as well. Uh, a lot of uh, law and order, uh, lock them up and throw away the key time policies that coincided with the revocation of traditional federal parole um, so what you also got is an unusually large cohort, right, uh, of people in this age category who are getting sick because prison is a place where you get sick sooner, more often, and a lot worse than you do in the outside world. Right. I mean, it's exactly like you said, this is sort of a uniquely American problem in the sense that our sentencing, even for nonviolent drug offenses is so much longer. And like you said, in the 80s and the 90s, we were putting people away for decades like Kevin Zeke uh, for, for drug offenses. And so now that's kind of catching up with us. And we're seeing this huge population of people who, you know, many of people I talked to had tried to get out through different means, like through a commutation of their sentence. 
um, through a pardon. And when those failed and they end up getting sick because prison is a deeply unhealthy place. I mean, you count elderly in prison as people 55 and older. Um, People age much more rapidly when they're incarcerated. And so all of these factors are sort of catching up with us now. And there's this big, expensive population of the elderly behind bars and people are trying to figure out what to do about it. You mentioned a man named Kevin Zeke. Let's add to this conversation his daughter, Kim Heraldes. Um, Kim, uh, you've been listening to some of this uh, conversation. Maybe uh, quickly, in a nutshell, you can just tell us the story uh, of your father and your your and his quest for compassionate release. Uh, yeah. Um, my dad started in 2012. He didn't really tell me much what he was applying for, but he said I, he, that he qualified for a few programs. Um, and then a few months later, he had got denied, and he told me that he was going to apply again. And I wasn't really, you know, understanding what he was applying for until he got denied for his second time. And then he told me, okay, this is what I am applying for. He told me what compassionate release was. He had uh, an attorney that helped him through the chapel of the church that's in the prison. And through him, we were able to, you know, get a release date, but that release date was a little too late. Um, It took us about four months for the warden just to send the letter off to the White House, just so Caitlin, I believe her her name is, so she can approve a release date. Uh, She took too long. It was on her desk from, like, November... Uh, the beginning of November till January, February, after all, there was Thanksgiving and then there was Christmas and she was on vacation. So she wasn't able to look over it. And by the time she was able to look over it and finally decide she was going to release him, they called me a Thursday, I believe, and left me a voicemail telling me that he would be, le- he would be released Monday. And Saturday morning, I got a call saying that he had passed away. Um, First of all, uh, I'm so sorry uh, about the end of that story. Uh, Back to Christy Thompson for a second. One of the things that you alluded to, maybe you want to say more about it, Christy, is the the complexity of the paperwork uh, that's involved in this, paperwork that probably exceeds the expertise of the average prisoner. Yeah, it's an incredibly complex bureaucracy for family members like Kim because it has to start with the warden itself. It gets signed off there by, you know, the unit's medical staff. There's a social worker that has to go to someone's home to ensure that there's a safe place for someone to live if they're released. I talked to a lot of family members who thought once the social worker came that that meant, oh, great, they're going to be home any day now. But actually, after that happens, then it gets passed on to the Central Bureau of Prisons' office where then their medical director reviews the records, you know, people look at the disciplinary record, and then after that, it has to go to a judge. So there's so many steps. It's very complicated to compile all the paperwork you need. And it's also, you know, as Kim told me, really hard to be getting information about where in the process your application is, um, you know, what the time frame is like when you might be expecting an answer. The families I talked to just said it was so complicated for them to try and navigate. You know, meanwhile, they're seeing their family member who's very, very sick, deteriorating and trying to figure out when they're going to how to plan for the future. It's such an unknown. So, and Kim, if I understand this story uh, correctly, uh, your father applied twice uh, and was told essentially that he wasn't sick enough to qualify for this. Uh, And then by the time he applied the third time and went through that waiting process where the application sat on someone's desk, he he had died from that same illness. 
Yes. So there's that's I mean obviously we don't even have to underscore the bizarreness. No, he and, and, was really sick. Yeah. They knew the doctors, the wardens, even nurses from outside the prison gave letters and said he's sick. He's really sick. We're even surprised that he's even alive. But he was fighting just to come home to see his grandkids. Um, did maybe you could just say a little bit? I, I know this is kind of a heartbreaking thing to talk about. What was your plan? In other words, had he been released? Uh, let's say, uh, at the end of his second application, how are you going to handle this? I was graduating. um, I went back to get my high school diploma, and I was going to graduate in May, so he wanted to see that. And after I graduated, we were going to go to Disneyland because he wanted to take my kids. Um, So we had plans, but he didn't make it. Right. Well, um, Kim, first of all, thank you so much for talking to us uh, about this. I know it's got to be painful, but it's also, I think, a story you you want other people to know. That's uh, Kim Heraldas, uh, whose father died in prison while awaiting a compassionate release. We're going to have more of Christy Thompson uh, after the break here. We're going to talk to uh, another family member uh, who went through something uh, that will be sickeningly familiar, having just told you this other story. Uh, So anyway, we'll be back. We'll be back right after this. We're back. If you're just tuning in, uh, we're talking about a system called compassionate release. It is intended uh, to make it possible for uh, prisoners who are old uh, and very sick to get out of prison, even though they um, may not be uh, eligible for release otherwise, so that they can either be cared for a little bit more adequately in hospital or nursing home settings or or home with their families uh, and and allow them to spend their last days in in a more peaceful environment. Uh, The problem is it's almost never used, almost never used despite the fact we have a burgeoning older prison population right now. I mean, you don't want to make it about cost, but it is also extremely costly uh, to uh, handle people this way. You'd rather have it be about uh, human beings. That's what we're going to make it about. Uh, Christy Thompson uh, is still here with us. Uh, She is a criminal justice writer for the Marshall Project, with whom we have done other uh, shows in the past. Uh, Her recent work, Old, Sick, and Dying in Shackles, uh, is uh, the prompting entity for this particular show. Uh, Joining us now also is Denise Litterford, uh, who is um, the brother uh, of a man in a similar situation, uh, a man who did die in prison while waiting approval of his application. Um, Christy, before I go to Denise, I'll, I'll have you set up this story a little bit. Uh, tell us about what you, Christy, found out about Anthony Bell. Sure. Um, so Anthony actually was only one year away from finishing his sentence for a cocaine distribution charge, but he, the doctors at his facility said he had about six months to live. He had really advanced and liver failure um, and was getting sicker and sicker every day. And it took a really long time. For, it took about six months for the central office of the Bureau of Prisons to give him an answer on his compassionate release request, and they denied him. Their finding was when they looked at the medical records, they thought he had about 18 months or longer to live. And two days after they gave him that denial, he he died still in custody. And actually, you know, when I spoke to Denise, she never knew the final outcome of her brother's case. She had never found out um, until I got the records through through FOIA, which just goes to show how little information families usually are able to get about these cases. 
Um, Denise, maybe that's a good place to pick up this conversation. Uh, how hard was it to get any information about this program, about your brother's eligibility uh, for it, uh, about how how he was doing in it? Uh, actually, when uh, this procedure started for the compassionate release, I was given six different locations where the application had to go and to be approved. So each time it went from person to person, I would check it off and I would share that with Anthony, you know. I'm like, we got six people, and they do two, and I say, you know, we're down to four. And each time I could hear that hope in his voice that he was coming home. And in between that, like the other lady just said, uh, the parole officer came out. Uh, they wanted to be sure that it was uh, appropriate where he would be staying and so forth. We contacted uh, the hospice so that he would have medical care when he got here. We were, we were tying up all our knots and, you know, just getting everything in order for him to come home. So when it got down to it left the uh, doctors and went to OIG, and then it had to go to um, an attorney, that's when it seemed to stop. So each time I would call, um, they couldn't give me an update as to what was taking so long. So each time I called after that, I said, look, we need to hurry this process because I do not want my brother to come home in a body bag. I want him to come home now while he's living. He has a terminal illness, and to me this process is taking too long. They said, oh, no, don't think that way. He'll be coming home. So they assured me he was coming home. It was not until I spoke with Christy Thompson that I found out that my brother was, in fact, denied. The family was never, ever told that he was denied. So I can see why two days later Anthony died, because the news of him being denied after him and I were going back and forth with the signatures, I'm sure that was it for him. Whatever strength he had, once they told him he was denied, it was like a death sentence. Yeah, I do want to underscore that just to make sure the listeners understand it, that you were under the impression, uh, based on your dealings uh, with this situation, that the reason your brother didn't come home was because he died, which is, I suppose, in a sense, true. But what you were never told until this reporter from the Marshall Project talked to you was he wasn't coming home anyway. He'd been denied He, based on that idea that he wasn't sick enough and that he had 18 more months to live. Exactly. The family was never told this, so that was a complete shock to us. I would imagine, and obviously this must be a very hard thing for you to think about and talk about, uh, but I would imagine that also having dealt with your brother all the way through this process and extended to him hope um, uh, that there was some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, um, that's emotionally a pretty difficult thing too, I, I would think. Yes, it, you know, it made me very angry. And to tell the truth, when Christy came to me and contacted me about doing that article for the New York Times, I was reluctant to do it. And then I sat and thought, well, you know, maybe, just maybe, this will help the next person. It won't bring my brother home, but maybe it will help the next person. And, and frankly, if the compassionate release is not going to work in the favor of the sick inmate, or whatever the cause may be, then they might as well just do away with the compassionate release. Just do away with it because this is a lot on the family and a lot of paperwork, and it looks like the only compassion we got from anybody or anything they did for us that was free was to send his body home 
embalm him, put him in a casket, and send him to us. Um, Christy, since uh, she's brought this up, since Denise brought this up, um, let's talk about uh, helping the next person. Um, there, there's support, bipartisan support, as I understand it, uh, in Congress to do a better job with this or, or maybe give uh, the Bureau of Prisons less absolute control on approval or denial of compassionate release. Where are we with possible changes to the process? Yeah, so the latest development is that a bill was recently introduced in the Senate um, by both Republican and Democratic lawmakers. And one of the main provisions of that is that it would allow families and inmates to petition the court directly to go directly to a judge and say, hey, can I be considered for compassionate release if they get denied by the Bureau of Prisons or if the Bureau of Prisons takes too long to get back to them. Right now, it all stops at the BOP. If the BOP says no, you can appeal their decision to them, but you can't go outside and ask a judge to take a look at the case. So that's one of the main provisions. Another thing it would do uh, would allow family members to to apply on an inmate's behalf. So and it, Denise obviously told you, and I've seen her giant paperwork. I mean, she did so much work on this application and was so involved in it, but this would explicitly say that it's okay for family members to compile those applications on inmates' behalf. And another thing is that it would create this sort of expedited track for people who are applying because of a terminal illness and hopefully try and get those cases to some resolution, whether that be approve or deny, more quickly because their illness is progressing so fast. So that was just introduced into the Senate, unclear where it's going to go, but this is definitely something that people are talking about more right now, especially as people are looking for ways to cut the federal prison population. I think there's some sense that this is in some way kind of lower hanging fruit, less controversial, the idea that we could let people out who are very, very ill, very, very old, uh, and costing a lot of money to the BOP that maybe, you know, there's been such difficulty in getting criminal justice reform passed at the federal level. Maybe there's more hope in, in pushing this program to expand. So that's something that a lot of people are looking at right now. Denise Littleford, I don't know if we've said it yet. We probably said it at the beginning. Your brother had lupus. Uh, he, ultimately, he also had a liver uh, failure. Um, the, lupus is a difficult disease to treat for people out in the outside world who can maybe um, have their pick of civilian hospitals uh, or, or veterans' hospitals, as would have been the case also with your brother, who's also a veteran. Um, I'm guessing prison isn't really a very good uh, place to diagnose, medicate, and treat a disease like lupus. Well, I like to speak about that. Um, my brother went into the prison with a liver condition, which he had fully under control. It was stable. He was doing well. He was seeing the doctor at the VA hospital in Washington, D.C. And all along, the doctor said that the medication he had on him was the one for him. There, there are seven different kinds, but this particular one he was on was the one that Anthony should be on to do well. Well, of course, when he was incarcerated, he did not get that medication. I tried numerous times to get that medication sent to him because if they sent it from the VA hospital, the medication would have been free of charge by him being a veteran. No cost to the, no cost to the prison. But the doctor at the hospital said it has to come, it has to be uh, from doctor to doctor. It can't come from me, my request. So I contacted the prison to, uh, to have someone tell me that, hey, your brother isn't the only one that's here sick. And by the way, prisoners die in jail every day. 
Of course, that really upset me, but I didn't let it stop me because I'm not a quitter. So I called back, and, um, you know, I tried numerous times to have them call to have the right medication sent. So subsequently, he did not get the right medication. He got medicine for the liver, but not the one that would work well. So the liver went from really bad now to lupus. So he ended up having the liver problem and then now lupus. So... So, it right. would have been nice that if he would have been able to get the medicine shipped there for free. And I understand he wasn't the only person sick there. You know, of course I knew that. But I just couldn't understand why that couldn't be done. What was your plan if your brother had been granted compassionate release, if he had had, you know, six months uh, or even six weeks more to live on the outside? What were you going to do? Well, let me tell you, we have a huge family here. And our family is very, very close. And we already had plans that he was going to be moving in here with his mother. His mother is now 80 years old. We already had contacted hospice, as I said earlier. They were going to be coming in, taking care of his medical needs. And I know my brother, he would have been so happy just to be in his home once again around his family. And if he did nothing else but see us each day, that would have been good enough for him. Because on his last visit, when I say last, it was the last time we saw him. When we went there, he was just, he was, what I want to say, unrecognizable. But being that my brother is so strong and courageous, he came into that visiting room anyway, knowing how he looked and knowing how weak he was. He could have refused that visit because not only were we going to see him in that condition, the other people that were in the room and their uh, visitors were going to see him. No one else in that whole room looked sick except for my brother. He could barely see us, but he was courageous enough. Either he thought, I better go out there because it may be my last time, or he wanted to see us just that bad. So even though he came out to see us, and so that told that tells you right there that he really loved us as much as we loved him. And no matter what it took, he was going to come out to see us. So I know coming home to him would have been the happiest thing in his life. You know, um, Christy, I'm going to uh, let you uh, end this segment. Uh, we've just heard two pretty wrenching stories, and they're human stories. They're stories about men who died alone. No one wants uh, another person to die alone, and no one wants to die alone. We've heard two stories about families that were prepared to make the very last days uh, of a family member's life a little bit more comfortable, uh, a family member way too sick to pose a threat to anybody else. Were you able to talk to anybody at the Bureau of Prisons about just some of these human valences that we're talking about right now? The Bureau of Prisons did not respond to uh, any of my repeated attempts to talk to them about this program. So, no. <laughs> um, the best sense we can get of their perspective was in a 2016 hearing in front of the Sentencing Commission where some people did bring up these, as you said, deeply human toll of this process of what it means for someone who wasn't sentenced to life in prison to die behind bars anyways, even if there's kind of this glimmer of hope through this program called Compassionate Release. Um, and 
what they said is kind of, you know, what I've already said here is that they, they just view the program very differently. They think it's supposed to be used exceedingly rarely. They think they're supposed to be considering someone's initial crime and thinking hard about whether they would have a likely likelihood of reoffending. And that's kind of the best sense I could have I could get of their of their reaction to this because they wouldn't talk to me on the record. All right. We're going to have to pause there. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the Connecticut version uh, of this story with two guests. Thanks to all the guests who've come so far, especially. Thank you so much, Denise Littleford. I know this is a hard story to tell, but I can answer your question. Yeah, it will help. It absolutely helps to tell a story like this. It will help somebody else, somebody somewhere down the line. I truly believe will benefit. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. On tomorrow's show, a look at exorcisms. And now, back to Colin. All right, now we're going to look at the state version of this. We've been talking entirely about federal prisons and federal policy. Joining us is Mike Lawler, Undersecretary for Criminal Justice Policy and Planning uh, in the Connecticut Office of Policy and Management. Joining us by phone, Mike's in studio with me. Joining us by phone is Richard Sparacco, Executive Director of the Connecticut Board of Pardons and Paroles. Mike, I'm going to start with you. Connecticut does have a version of compassionate release. I think it's called medical parole. What, what do we have here uh, what what can be offered to prisoners comparable to the ones we've been talking about? Well, we've got a bunch of different options. And I think as you've been exploring on the program so far, this is kind of a new problem. You know, it, it grows out of uh, policies made in the late 80s and 90s. Uh, <clears throat> so one of the things we've done here, which is a little bit innovative, first in the country, is we've given the Commissioner of Corrections the ability to transfer these uh, aging, de- uh, debilitated inmates to a nursing home, which was a little bit controversial when it was first proposed, but it's working out great so far. And and But beyond that, the parole board has some options, which I'm sure Rich can describe, to, uh, to identify people who are appropriate for uh, being eased out of the prison system who are quite elderly. So um, not everybody in the nursing home is actually old. It's based on their physical situation. Uh, but it's a real problem. And I, and I can tell you that states around the country are dealing with this, and many of them are looking to this nursing home option as a, as a potential solution to the problem. Yeah, Richard Sparacco, as we know, uh, you can look at the Department of Corrections website and there are these graphs showing you that the prison population is declining. It's even possible to close a, a prison uh, now and again. But but Connecticut isn't that different from the rest of the country, right? You've got, uh, Mike, as Mike says, this program isn't limited to older prisoners. But let's face it, older prisoners are, are not going away. And if anything, they're a greater portion of the prison population, correct? That is correct, yeah. And, and so tell, say a little bit more about, um, I, I want to come back to the, to the nursing home that Mike's talking about, but what else can, um, can your department do uh, for prisoners who might fall into one of these categories? Well, you know, on the books we have um, a couple different statutes which give the board some flexibility in terms of dealing with either aging prisoners or um, uh, prisoners who actually uh, have a certain medical diagnosis, uh, which is terminal. Um, we have, uh, and I think what you've referred to is medical parole on our uh, um, on the Connecticut General Statutes, which allows somebody to be reviewed for release uh, regardless of percentage of time served um, if they have a diagnosis of generally six months or less to live. 
Um, that was enacted uh, quite some time back in the 80s, and then compassionate parole came along around 2004, uh, which gives the ability, which gives the board the ability to review uh, 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 individuals for release to the community uh, if they, you know, are suffering from a debilitating disease or a chronic condition or are, um, you know, of a certain age where they no longer pose a threat to the community. Uh, how, so we how, do have a couple of those options. How often are those uh, options granted? I, I don't know if, you, if you, there's a way that you can characterize that. Well, sure. I mean, you know, just uh, just run some numbers, uh, you know, and they're not utilized that often. Um, for example, right now we only have two people uh, currently uh, under medical and compassionate, uh, one under compassionate parole, one under medical parole. Uh, just, re- you know, reviewing the numbers over the past uh, four years, um, you know, in 2017, we only granted one compassionate release. Um, well, I'm sorry, three compassionate releases and one medical release. 2016, there was one of each. So it's it's an option, but it's not utilized that much. Um, For what it's yeah, worth, there's yeah. 83 patients in the nursing home I was describing. So that, that seems to be taking up a lot of this space. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about this nursing home. Uh, It's called 60 West. Uh, It opened in 2013. It's a 95-bed facility, and it's essentially a nursing home. It's not a prison. It's a nursing home that runs pretty much, as I understand it, like any nursing home would. Yeah, I've been there. It looks like any other nursing home. Uh, There was a lot of concern in the the neighborhood when it first opened. I think a lot of the concerns people had were legitimate, but it turns out that they were uh, never realized, right? None of the, no bad things actually happen because people in nursing home are, are quite uh, debilitated. And, and just to give you some other numbers, uh, right now we have about 450 inmates out of the 13,600 who are over the age of 60. Uh, of that, 80 are over the age of 70. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that, uh, it, and I think you said this earlier in the program, like I'm 61, I like to think 60 is the new 40, right? Mm-hmm. But for inmates, 40 is the new 60. I mean, it kind of works the opposite. You age faster in prison. For sure. And, and most inmates obviously have been through a, a complicated life to get to where they were. Uh, but the, uh, the other thing is, and, and uh, this needs to be kept in mind looking forward into the future, and that is the, the big reduction in the prison population you described is only among the younger inmates. And, mm-hmm. and that's a good leading edge for 20, 30 years from now. But for now, we have a lot of very old and debilitated prisoners. Right. And you're going to get more before uh, the, the hump clears and you start going down kind of the, the lower gradient on yeah. the other side. Yes. You're going to get more of those. You know, we hate to make anything like this about money, uh, but money does crop up from time to time in conversations about state policy. One thing that I hadn't realized about this is that um, prisoners forfeit Medicaid eligibility in prison, right? Whereas you can treat them at 60 West and get federal Medicaid reimbursement? Yes, exactly. And and under Obamacare, you know, about 80 percent of the cost is reimbursed by the federal government. Zero percent is reimbursed if they're in prison. So the same exact care that's provided to an inmate uh, versus in the community is, is way more expensive to Connecticut taxpayers as a result. Richard Sparacco, uh, at this point, do you feel as though the system's working? In other words, are the people who need or can vastly benefit from some kind of compassionate release or medical parole or whatever we want to call it, uh, are they all getting it or, or is the system moving too slowly? Well, I, and I think I need to clarify one um, one part of this, is that th- we don't actually go look for cases. We, right. we rely on cases to be referred to the board. So, I mean, I think there there is the potential that, that potentially maybe more cases could be referred to us. And, and we do rely on uh, correctional managed health care within the Department of Correction to refer cases that would meet the criteria. Medical parole is very specific. 
uh, you have to have a diagnosis of less than six months to live. You know, that, that's, that's required by the statute. Um, and, and we do, um, uh, you know, uh, have emergency panels that we will schedule when we have those cases that are referred to us. And, and generally, uh, when we have a case that's referred, you know, it generally results in the release. Compassionate's a little bit different. Um, the statute is a little bit more restrictive. Uh, for example, uh, for a nonviolent offender, you still have to serve 50% of your time, which is the same threshold of eligibility for regular release. Um, we can review the case of a violent offender who has to serve a little bit longer, um, i.e. 85% of their time at the 50% mark. So I, I think it could there could be a little bit more improvement in terms of the referral mechanism over to the board, but we're always still, you know, uh, reaching out and, and looking for some of these cases uh, in terms of if they do exist. Yeah, so Mike, I, it could improve that. So, Mike Lawler, uh, as you said, initially this wasn't necessarily um, an easy idea for some of the people who live near 60 West. I think they might have been uh, picturing Oz or something. Um, these are, for the most part, incredibly sick and debilitated people who are there, nursing home patients, basically. I mean, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. As other states look at this problem, that's going to be on their radar screen, too. What happens in the community where we try to do this? Well, Connecticut is unique because we don't have a lot of wide open space like you'd see in a lot of other states. But um, it, 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 these are legitimate concerns. But, you know, I, I just want to emphasize that beyond parole, which is a very specific procedure, and the nursing home, the Commissioner of Corrections actually has other options which he can exercise to, to push people out the door, let's say, 90 days early, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that is used frequently in these kinds of situations. So it's not just the parole board or the nursing home. There's some other options which are used with some frequency. Okay, we got about uh, 30 seconds left. I'll ask you the same question. Do you think the system works pretty well right now? Are there people who, who maybe need this who are getting turned down in one way or another? Or I mean, how co confident are you about Connecticut? Well, there's some people getting turned down because they meet the criteria, but at the same time, very notorious type of crime or strong involvement by victims. And so the we're all conscious of that as well. So I mean, there may be some people who are in a sense, dying in a prison. You know, for example, the guys who are, get this life without the possibility of release sentence, the mm. former death row type sentence, uh, they're going to die inside a prison. All right. We're going to stop there. I want to thank Betsy Kaplan, who did an excellent job of putting this together and who's had a very stressful past hour. But see, it all worked out fine. Uh, and thanks very much to Mike Waller to come in for coming into studio. Uh, Richard Sparacco, Executive Director of Connecticut Board of Pardons and Paroles, for joining us by phone. Christy Thompson and the Marshall Project, um, they're the reason we did this. The Marshall Project now knows that they can call us up or email us about some of the stories that they have trouble getting told. Uh, and we tend to be a, a good court of if not last resort, um, you know, one of one of the last resorts. Uh, thanks also to the two family members, Kim Heraldez and Denise Littleford, who shared their very painful stories. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a whole other show. Thanks for listening to this one.